If you have a Bible with you, please open to Romans chapter 7, or you can follow along the same text as printed there in your bulletin. My sermon today is on defunding the law. And uh, I tried to warn Adams before I started it. Defunding the law, not the police. And when you hear a redneck say the law, I know sometimes it sounds like we mean the police, like I fought the law and the law won, but I don't mean that. I mean like the Torah. I mean um, like other laws that are like the Torah, standards of right and wrong and what we think is uh, what our consciences tell us is good in the world. The Old Testament law, God's law. Defunding, not abolishing the law, but defunding it. That is pulling its scope in to what's appropriate and not letting it act outside the bounds where it can fruitfully function. So bring the law back into the place where it's fruitful and helpful for the Christian rather than the ways in which it's destructive for the Christian. Limit what we ask the law to do and limit what we allow the law to do. So in saying that, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the law. Uh, There's not. This passage talks pretty openly about how good the law is. It's holy. I am saying, though, that there's something wrong with you and me. And because of what's wrong with us, the law doesn't work uh, in ways that we might hope that it can or expect it to. Uh, The law, instead of making us better, Paul is going to argue in the passage today, instead of making us better, it makes us worse. And then it turns around on us and crushes us with guilt and shame because uh, we have failed it. And when Jesus came, he said, I'm not going to let the law do that to you anymore. I'm not going to let it move beyond its scope of what's appropriate for a believer in Jesus Christ. And so he defunds it by putting it in its rightful place. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we pray uh, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me the first 12 verses of Romans 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. 
I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week, uh, Paul was describing our, rela- our new situation as Christians as being people who have been freed from slavery. And this week he's describing it as people who've been freed from marriage. And um, that was just as funny last week as it was this week. But we're freed from marriage kind of like a fatal attraction marriage, though. Um, married to somebody who wasn't good to us. And we're kind of like a widow who's happy. To be a widow now, right? Because uh, it's an, a way out of a terrible, abusive marriage. There's a pretty dark country song that Randy Travis sang years ago uh, called What'll You Do About Me? And it's kind of talking about a lover who has been rejected, but who isn't going away. And he says, uh, what in the world are you planning to do when a man comes over to visit with you and I'm on the porch with a two by two? What will you do about me? And it went on in that happy vein for several more stanzas, right? (laughs) He's on the porch with a two-by-two in case you ever try to have joy in a new relationship. And he's there to beg you to take him back even though he was abusive. And Paul in this passage is saying that basically that's how the law did function and now tries to function in our lives as Christians. And it is not allowed to anymore. But from what I can tell, most Christians live with the law sitting on their front porch with a two-by-two. And any time you come anywhere close to having joy in your new relationship with Jesus, that law gets up and starts swinging that two-by-two. Saying, take me back instead of him. And I know what all you've done. I could tell him things about you and he'd hate you. And he's there on the porch. This is kind of a down-home southerner example, I know. But just go with me on it. Jesus has run off your abusive ex. He's killed your abusive ex. The law, when the law is functioning that way in our lives. And says in verse 4 here, this dramatic statement, you have died to the law. And then in verse 6, he says, you've been released from the law that held you captive, and you're not captive anymore. You've died to the law. That's not because the law is bad, but it's because the law tends to function abusively in your life. And Jesus sets you free from that abusive treatment from the law. So we're going to think about what does it mean to be dead to the law? You'll probably quickly surmise it doesn't mean that... God's commandments that used to be good and used to describe human flourishing and the way that he's pleased with us in the world and and what's beautiful and true for a human in the world are now all out the window. That's not the case at all. To be dead to the law means that we don't allow it to condemn us anymore first. And we don't ask it to fix us second. We don't allow it to condemn us and we don't ask it to fix us. And those are the two ways in which we're free from the law. And both of those are pretty sweet. 
when you think about it. So let's think about it. First, the law can't condemn you anymore. It can't condemn you anymore. Paul says the law in his life was like a mirror. Um, He's talking especially about the 10th commandment and covetousness. But in verse 7, he says, um, If it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law hadn't said you should not covet. You think, what? He was the biggest expert in the Old Testament that anybody knew. He was the biggest expert he knew. Of course, he knew the Ten Commandments. But what he says here is, it didn't dawn on me (laughs) that the Tenth Commandment was a problem for me um, until the law came, as he says in verse 9. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came, and I died. It's like an epiphany moment to say, oh, no. I am not what I thought I was. I've been self-deluded my whole life. I'm, I mean, that's my whole thing is to be the expert in the law and the good person. And now I realize that the law is killing me. I, it condemns me, not congratulates me. Uh, my son had an epiphany moment like this. He grew up in the church and, you know, it was a pretty quick study. And he knew all the Ten Commandments because, you know, I wouldn't let him eat supper if they couldn't name them. And... Uh, but he had an epiphany moment watching a Guy Ritchie movie one night. I watched it with him. I was kind of bored. I didn't like the movie that much. Um, Holy Spirit came down on Zach uh, during that movie, and he went for a walk for a couple hours in the middle of the night, came back and said, Dad, I think everything I've ever done in my whole life has been out of pride. He was on the fast track to becoming a Christian, for real. That's what Paul's saying happened to him, like an epiphany, this... It hit me that the law is not my friend. I've broken the law. I'm full of all kind of covetousness. I'm in trouble because of the law. Um, And that's what the law does, and it's good that the law does that. There's a... I read this in the Freakonomics book. Um, I don't know if it's true, but preachers don't care if illustrations are true. So, um, call it homiletical license. They had a problem with getting doctors to wash their hands at the hospital. It's very heartening, isn't it? <laughs> Cedar Sinai, they, they're trying to get people to wash their hands more, the doctors, you know, so they, uh, they put up little motivational posters, you know, and they uh, gave out Purell at the door to the doctors when they showed up at the hospitals. And uh, they even gave them Starbucks cards if they caught them washing their hands. <laughs> you think, wow. Um, I was hoping they would just do that. People who were hired kind of as consultants to try to improve on the quality in the hospital, though, uh, had the people in the room that were the main, care, main actors in trying to uh, produce compliance to the hand-washing needs. And uh, all these other measures had failed, so what these people did is they got these dishes of auger and said, had all these compliance officers, the physicians and, and uh, administrators, put, put their hand in the auger. And then they went and cultured it. And then came back and showed them the pictures. <laughs> Apparently that was very effective for helping them see the need to wash their hands because there were just gobs of bacteria on them and it looked hideous. Um, that's what the law can do. It can show you that your hands are dirty even when you're going along thinking they weren't. Right? The law can do that for you. That's a good use of the law. It exposes you. It can be crushing like it was for Paul when he got exposed by the law. But really, 
it's good to get exposed by the law because then you might, for once in your life, run to Jesus and look for mercy, right? If you don't get crushed by the law, what, what do you really feel your need for Jesus for? Right? But what, that's what law does for us that's good. Finally run to him. You realize I'm not going to stride into the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to be carried in if I get in there at all uh, because I'm not a good person. That's what the law, we're happy the law does that. Not so we can be morbidly introspective, but so we can see our real need and experience the real help that Jesus brings. That's, and that's good for us. So the law will do this for us. Like, I had a friend who was a prosecutor who became a defense attorney. And, uh, you know, his whole world changed. His whole perspective on the world changed. And uh, he said, the one thing that will cause somebody to change their view of how important uh, the rights of the accused are and how needful despised defense attorneys are, the one thing that will change people's attitude about that is the clicking of handcuffs, right? <laughs> the clicking of handcuffs, because suddenly your perspective changes on the whole uh, criminal justice system. And uh, that's what the law does for us. The law clicks the handcuffs, and it makes us say, I need a defender, I need some help, and I can't help myself. And so the law drives us to Jesus, and that's great. Because when you get driven to Jesus, like the whole first part of the letter of Romans says, you get justified, to use Paul's term. That is, you get forgiven. You get made clean. You get made right in the eyes of God. And now that you're a justified Christian, and now that you stand in God's favor in His presence, the law needs to get off the porch. It needs to take its two-by-two and get off the porch. Because the law sits on the porch saying, come back to me. Come back to me. I'll make you good. I'll make you good. I'll fix you. I'll protect you from sin. I'll protect your children from sinning. Come back to me. Just come back to me. Give me another chance. Come back to me. And if you say it all, no, I met somebody. (laughs) He's loving. He's good to me. Then the law says, not if he knew you. Not if he knew you. I'm going to tell him all the bad things about you. He ain't going to love you if he knows you. And here you get gaslighted by your old abusive ex. As soon as you ever start to feel any joy or any freedom in your relationship with Jesus, he's got the two by two on the porch coming after you, blocking you from joy. And Jesus said, not anymore. I've killed him. You're dead to the law. You're free from being captive to the law. He cannot condemn you anymore. You're released. This is where the marriage analogy, again, seems less flattering to marriage because you're like that widow who's happy her old husband died. (laughs) What a relief. Did a funeral one time for somebody in that situation. We just thought, is this woman just not very emotional? She just doesn't seem all that torn up. And a few months later, she told me she was so happy <laughs> that he had died. And I thought, well, that makes sense. I understand now. Well, that's how we are as Christians. It's good that our old husband died. So we sing about this kind of thing now. Let's love and sing and wonder. Let's praise the Savior's name because he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He's quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He does not let the law condemn us anymore. 
So we sing his praise. We love and sing and wonder. Augustus Top Lady, that was Isaac Watts. Augustus Top Lady's song says, The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. We're free. We're free. The law cannot condemn us anymore. Past sins don't define you. Guilt and shame aren't the real story of your life. Law can't condemn you anymore. But the law also can't make you good. Can't make you good. And that's the second point. Paul talks about fruit in this passage. By the way, this passage is way more complicated than I'm making it. Um, I read commentaries all week. Really smart, really godly people who totally disagree with each other about this passage. And so I ain't solving that fight. Um, I'm not in their league. So I'm going to say what is obvious and go with that. The... uh, contrast he draws is between the fruit that you used to bear uh, in your old life under your old master in your old marriage through the law and the fruit you bear now in your new marriage with Jesus right or what Paul calls other places the fruit of the Holy Spirit you know real change in character in your life and he says uh, before you knew Jesus uh, you bore fruit with the law but you had Sin babies with the law. You think, well, but the law is holy. How come, how come the fruit I got from trying to keep the law was sin babies? And the uh, problem isn't with the law, it's with you. And so when you, as someone born like we all are in rebellion against God, try to use the law to do good, you wind up doing bad. Um, but he says... That now that you know Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit lives in you, you can bear fruit that is good and beautiful. Good babies, right? Like love and joy and peace and kindness. These good things that you can't produce yourself and the law can never produce with you. But Jesus produces in you by His Holy Spirit. Because the law just can't help you do those things. The law can't fix you. The law can't uh, be keepable for you. It's like the auger in the dish at the hospital wasn't going to make their hands cleaner. It's just going to show them that their hands are dirty. And if you try to treat the law, use auger to clean your hands, that doesn't work. And the law can't clean you either. Actually, Paul says, and this is pretty weird, he says the law makes you worse. The law makes you worse. Do you think anybody outside the church looking in uh, would think that we believe that? That we're worried that the law will make people worse. Um, they just hear us saying straighten up and fly right. But Paul says, the law came and aroused my sinful passions. Stirred them up. Made it worse. He says, it produced covetousness in me. The law produced covetousness in me. By saying, don't be covetous. Anybody who's made rules for a school classroom knows how this works, right? <laughs> you make a law, now you got people who want to break it. And uh, that's what Paul says happens with him. And yet, knowing that, the legal hopes of Christians run so deep. We still think the law can do so much for us. Still so hopeful that an accountability group will cause me to become holy. Right? Because I can keep the law better if I get people to help me keep the law. 
We have legal hope that runs deep. And uh, you see it in all kinds of churches. You see it in liberal and conservative churches. And it's sort of a litmus test. The more politicized the church is, the more hopeful they are in the law, right? Because they're thinking that the law can do something really dramatically good for us. When Christians believe the law can point us to Jesus, but it can't fix us at all. Um, But it's really common, and I'm sure most of you have lived in situations where you feel like uh, the Christian religion you're involved in has just driven you back into your abusive ex's arms uh, where he's gaslighting you and holding you down under guilt and shame and accusing you all the time and beating you. It's not an uncommon experience. It's not uncommon outside the church either. It's about the same. People look at law similarly outside the church as they do inside it. Everybody hopes in the law. A guy named Alan Jacobs said this. He said... uh, I'll paraphrase. When you reject Christianity, you don't become less moralistic. You become more moralistic. When you reject Christianity, you become more moralistic. Not throw off the yoke, super free, do what I want to do now. You become more moralistic because you have this more vague sense of what is just and right. And no apparatus for offering or receiving forgiveness. And if you don't believe that, go read your Twitter feed. Because you see people acting in massive righteous indignation, uh, but with no real way to determine what is just and right, and certainly no hope of forgiveness. These things we see to be true. I saw a sillier example of it when we lived in Portland, Oregon. And uh, we learned that buying coffee is pretty morally fraught. Um, You've got to buy the right kind of coffee if you want to be righteous. And you do want to be righteous, don't you? Okay, then. Then you need to buy the right kind of coffee. You need to buy the songbird-friendly coffee because it's grown you know, in the canopy of the rainforest. And then the songbirds still have a place to live and are protected. But if you buy the songbird-friendly coffee, you realize it takes more diesel fuel to go harvest it and get it to you than other kind of coffee. So songbird-friendly coffee isn't righteous either. So what kind of coffee is righteous? I don't know. (laughs) And you don't either. But you better not get it wrong, because we're not going to forgive you if you get it wrong, even though we don't know what the right way is. There's just always something wrong. You can't win the righteousness game. You can't win the law game. Anybody's law. You can't win it on Twitter. You can't win it in church. You can't win the righteousness game. It's never enough. You'll always wind up being a hypocrite. Or you'll dumb down the law so it's something super easy to keep. Or you'll be full of foolish pride like you're something when you're nothing. Or most likely, what people do at church, they just hide. You hide. I just pretend I'm good. I pretend I'm fine. I pretend I'm okay. Yeah, I need, I need Jesus, but not really. I'm good. Right? I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. What? It's a real recipe for joy in life, isn't it? Freedom in life. I'm going to hide and pretend I'm keeping the law when, of course, I'm not. I can't. That's why Jesus defunds the law. He says, I'm not going to ask you to make me good anymore. I'm not going to let you ask my people to make them good anymore because you're lying and you can't do it. You can't make them good. Stop saying that you can. Stop believing that it can. 
He says to us, it's not its job to fix and improve you or your kids. Your hope of change is to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Have the Holy Spirit in your life. What does he say in verse 6? We're released from the law. We died to that which held us captive. Now we serve in the new way of the Spirit. The new way of the Spirit. Which isn't a different ethic. It's a different motivational structure for what makes us obey. Right? Different motivational structure. It's the love and approbation of Jesus given to us as a free gift that drives our obedience now. Um, Free mercy. Free, being freely loved. That's what drives our obedience now. And most people hear that and they think, yeah, no, (laughs) that won't work. That'll just make people slackers, right? That'll make people slackers. Accountability group's what you need, not the free love of Jesus. Not the Holy Spirit in your heart telling you that you're the children of God and He's delighted with you. No, you need, you need to work on this. But I'll tell you, it's false. It doesn't work. If you want to change a bigot, for instance, how do you do it? Scold them? Take it from me, that doesn't work. Scolding a bigot might make a bigot hide, but it won't change me. Scream at the bigot? Does that work? Maybe a little. Not really. I just be a little more careful about how I express it. What's changing me, and what I hope will continue to change me as a bigot, is having a different righteousness than my race. And finding in Jesus Christ something that defines me, that gives me substance other than some accident of birth. And the gospel insists and drives me to see myself in the other in a way that the rules never could. The rules never could. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in my life that turns my attitude differently out towards other people. And that's hope for change. Um, You think that mercy makes you a slacker. You're just looking for very superficial change. If you want to be changed down at the level of what needs to change in us, it takes more than the law. The law can't fix you that way. But the law being uh, killed and us being dead to it as a way to fix ourselves does kind of make us slackers in the best sense. At least... One day out of seven, you're commanded to be a slacker because of the mercy of Jesus. You're supposed to take a whole day and not do good works yourself, but rest in the good works Jesus has done for you. That's my kind of slacking, right? And the picture of the new creation is every day being the Sabbath day. So what that means is that Jesus commands us as our new uh, spouse He commands us to rest. Commands us to rest. Is there any law in the world that commands you to rest? Does the Achievatron of the meritocracy command you to rest ever? You don't even get to rest when you're a preschooler in the meritocracy because you've got to be building your credentials, right? There is no rest for the achiever. Um, If you're a woman... 
there's no rest for the law that's on you in our culture. This is Brene Brown brought the Anjali commercial back in her talks, uh, but I grew up with it. Here's the Anjali woman. It's a perfume commercial. I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in the pan, and never ever let you forget you're a man. And she's exhausted before you even start talking about the children. <laughs> you can have it all means you must do it all. You may never rest. If you fail, there is no forgiveness for you. Welcome to law. I'm trying to fix you. And then I'm guessing you know good and well yourself what a legalistic church is like. There's no rest. There's no rest. Jesus said, if you're heavy, laden down, and weary, why don't you come to me and I'll give you rest for your soul? Now, wouldn't you rather have that than have the law on the porch with the two-by-two slapping in his hand, threatening you? We're dead to the self-improvement plan of the law. It doesn't work, and we don't have to follow it anymore. Someone described it this way, is that we are free from the tyranny of the shoulds. The shoulds, what I should do. I saw a fantastic commercial for this uh, from Halo Ice Cream. There's this uh, woman who's dancing like crazy to a Mama Hayes song all around her apartment. This woman was, let's say, Rubenesque and uh, about half-dressed and dancing like crazy with joy and freedom and man letting it all hang out and going to town dancing and eating ice cream and the text over the pictures of her dancing like this said this you should lose weight you should work out more you should eat more salads you should skip dessert man off she's going still going to town. Finally dances by the window and looks across the alley. Her neighbor's looking at her through the window. Her neighbor is a very dour and censorious looking person who's just looking at her like this. And she stops for just a beat. Boom, and then she goes off again, dancing again. Like, I'm not going to listen to you. And the uh, tagline of the commercial was, stop shooting yourself. And it was pretty beautiful. Because what Jesus says he's done in this passage is that he's pulled down the blinds over the censorious neighbor. That he's killed the guy on the front porch with the two-by-two. That he's looked all of the self-help gurus in the eye and just rolled his eyes at them. Because he doesn't believe in them and we don't have to either. Because Jesus sets you free to dance with him and to bear fruit with him. Beautiful little babies of love and joy and peace that the law could never possibly create for you. And that's why Jesus has defunded the law for Christians. Let's pray.